Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. And that, Caroline, is uh, Robert Johnson. Yes, yes. Now, we, I understand that the clip sounds very old and scratchy, and I'm sure his voice sounds higher pitched than it was in real life, just because this is from the 30s. But um, if you don't recognize the name Robert Johnson at first listen, chances are you have enjoyed music heavily influenced by his work. Well, sure, yeah, all rock and uh, uh, R&B and therefore pop music, Carrie. Have you heard of Robert Johnson, Sean? Yes, of course. I can't say I'm super familiar with old, old-time blues music. <laughs> no? But, but I do know that Robert Johnson uh, supposedly sold his soul to the devil to be able to play the guitar real well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a character in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's, who's clearly based on this uh, uh, you know, figure, uh, but yeah, that selling his soul to the devil thing is basically all I know about him. Yeah, well, Robert Johnson was and still is a legend of American blues. He's kind of considered the first official, uh, so to speak, member of the 27 Club. And he was one of the first major figures to influence the genre of rock and roll music. The guy we just heard was less than 27 years old? He was 27. Just uh, people sounded different back then. <laughs> Had a lot more living in those years, I think. Yeah, I guess. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame refers to Robert Johnson as the first ever rock star. He's kind of the the founding father of rock in a way. Major musicians like Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, and Robert Plant have named Johnson as one of the key influences on their work. And Eric Clapton himself called him the most important blues singer that ever lived. But little is known for sure about Johnson's life, and much of his influence stems from a mere couple dozen recordings made in 1936 and 37, one of which you just heard a clip from. Uh, before he died, uh, very unexpectedly, at the age of, obviously, 27 in 1938. So this is a story of like a um, white hot rise to flame, or f- to fame, and then, a f- and then a f- the just as fast uh, flaming out, like we've, like we've seen repeated so many times uh, after. Yeah, I mean, the, the classic, it's better to burn out than to fade away, which is a quote from another uh, 27 Club member, Kurt Cobain. But yes, it's, it's sort of this very unexpected halting of a rise in people knowing who this person is and people seeking him out to listen to him perform. You know, I do think if Kurt had made it to the fading away stage, I think he would find it very comfortable. Yeah, it's it's sad what he went through. He was obviously struggling with a lot. Um, obviously, there are conspiracy theories regarding him and many of the other members of the 27 Club. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later and then more in a future episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I've talked before about how I'm really interested in the history of music, especially rock and roll, um, just because I think that genre in particular is such a sort of a temperature gauge of American culture, especially. 
with the rise and the different trends and everything, it really tends to closely follow what's relevant in popular culture and what's relevant politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert Johnson, I mean, you can't talk about the history of American music without talking about him. But how did he exert so much impact on that history of music in such a short span of time with such a relatively small legacy left behind of just a few recordings. Oh, I already told you, Carrie, he was a warlock. Well, Sean, perhaps part of the interest is that old Robert has a very particular, very famous legend attached to his name that he sold his soul to the devil at a local crossroads to achieve his musical success. So where did this legend come from? Why was it attached to him? Is there any truth to it? Did he spread this rumor about himself? Is there any truth to it? Well, any truth to it, at least, you know, from his own mouth. Like, did he say that? Even if he was lying, blues musicians would kind of say things about themselves all the time to sort of build a mystique and a story. Well, I know he has a song called The Crossroad Blues. Is that Mm -hmm. not about going to the crossroad and selling a soul to the devil? Weirdly, it's not, Sean. It's about going to the crossroad. Well, that's... But he's doing other stuff there. Yeah, I can only say say I'm surprised. (laughs) But the first one that we listened to a clip from, and we'll talk about it a little more later, is Hellhound on My Trail. Yeah, I heard him say it a couple times. A little more explicitly about being followed by a dark entity of sorts. Now, whether that's uh, emotional or literal... Who's to say? But to try and explain where this legend came from, and if there's anything to it, we have to go back to the early 1900s to the Mississippi Delta and the very beginnings of American blues, at least in the sense of recording and becoming, you know, more popularly known. Right, because the form has been developing from slave spirituals, right? Exactly, yes. Combined with, you know, folk music that has that was developed in the South and, and West. But yeah, you, you can't have the blues without having the legacy of slavery in there. So there's obviously a lot to talk about. But we're, we're going to start in Mississippi in the early 1900s. Robert Johnson was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, possibly on May 8th, 1911, to Julia Major Dodds and a farm worker named Noah Johnson. Now, Robert was the result of an extramarital affair between Julia and Noah. Mm. Julia's actual husband, Charles Dodds, had earlier been forced by a lynch mob to leave the area following a dispute he had with some white landowners. So he had fled town. And uh, Julia was left all alone. And And stepping out with another lady's uh, man. Yeah, I couldn't tell exactly if Noah was married, but I assume he was. He wasn't much of a presence in the baby's life. Uh, Soon after baby Robert's birth, Julia left Hazelhurst with him, eventually moving with Robert to Memphis to live with Charles Dodds, who she was still married to, and who had changed his name to Charles Spencer. Um Apparently, Charles was understanding when his wife showed up with some other guy's baby uh, because the family lived together in Memphis for the next eight to nine years. Now, um, obviously, recording recording music isn't a thing yet. So Memphis is mainly known for just racism at this point? (laughs) No, I mean, well, yes. But also... um, In Memphis, young Robert Johnson sort of discovered his love for blues music because it was a very popular thing to perform live. And this love would end up becoming the defining one of his life. 
it reminds me of like the beginning of the Elvis movie, you know, where he's kind of going around. What's that great music playing? You know, it's very much that. When he goes to like the gospel meeting, yeah, and then he he's I th- is he in actually actually in Memphis when he he sees like he meets Little Richard and it's oh. like oh he's there. Yes, I think they are hanging out in, in Memphis. Yes, it seems that Charles Spencer died sometime in the nineteen teens because Julia would remarry around nineteen nineteen to a sharecropper named Will Dusty Willis moving to the town of Commerce in the Mississippi Delta, and soon Robert would join them there. And he was still school-aged, so he was kind of bopping around from school to school. But he was in school, which not every uh, young boy, poor kid in the South would be, and certainly not every young black child would be in the South. Robert was fairly well-educated for a man of his, young man of his ethnicity and poor background, and that could have helped him in his musicianship later on. We, I remember uh, we talked in our Man from the Train episode, our uh, axe murder extravaganza of last year, uh, about just how low the literacy rate was yeah. throughout the South uh, mm-hmm. for white and black kids, but black kids especially uh, yeah. in the early 20th century. And Robert... At times, he was attending what were called colored schools. These were segregated just for African-American children. Um, But he was attending school, which a lot of kids would drop out. A lot of kids would spend their time on the farm or actually working at this point. So he spent most of his young life in school, which is different for this time period. At some point, he began to pick up instruments to learn them. Uh, Willie Coffey, an old school friend, was interviewed later in life about Johnson. And he said that even in school, Robert was already known for playing harmonica and jaw harp. Don't you have a jaw harp? Uh, a, a Jew's harp? I do. Oh, Sean, that feels weird. I don't know. It's just what it's called. It's okay. also called a jaw harp. Okay. Um, is that the one that goes like bow, 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 yeah, yeah you, you hate it it's like it's a little just a little metal thing you put on your teeth and try not to crack your teeth as mm. you uh, strum it yeah be careful with that <laughs> I can go get it should I go get it you know what uh, I think we've kind of represented it here <laughs> At some point around this time, Julia informed Robert that his real father was her bygone lover, Noah Johnson. Uh, It seems like because he was so young when they moved back to be with Charles Dodds, he just thought that Charles was his father his whole life. And this revelation prompted Robert to adopt the surname of Johnson after his birth father. And um, also around this time, Robert married 14-year-old different times people virginia travis in february of 1929 but she would sadly die in childbirth shortly after and the baby also tragically passed with her you know you had intimated carrie that we might be talking about edgar Allan poe again this week and uh, i'm just glad i'm I'm gonna get there but i'm just glad we still got to uh, marrying some teenagers in here yeah and her name's virginia too if if she was a cousin it would be the trifecta (laughs) In interviews with blues researcher Robert Mac McCormick, surviving relatives of Virginia's said that they believed her death was divine punishment for Robert's decision to sing secular songs, in a way uh, selling his soul to the devil. And McCormick concluded that Johnson himself kind of accepted or at least embraced this idea. Maybe it added to his sort of dark mystique. But, but also like kind of a... 
I mean, probably it was this symbolic of a greater like kind of shedding of his. Well, I, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take the music with me, but I'm not gonna. Um, he does that a little more later on, but I think this is kind of the first time where because he had left home, she was pregnant. She stayed back with her family to give birth, and he had left to go make some money, and he was trying to do so playing music, and we'll see why that is. Um, wasn't really a, a great avenue for him at the time. And he came back and her yes. and the baby were gone. The answer, by the way, is because no one just wants to hear you stand there and play a jaw harp for, <laughs> for two hours. No one well, no, he wasn't, he wasn't good, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But um, so he comes back and, and his wife and baby are dead. And now he is not married and he doesn't have these same responsibilities anymore. Um, and so he, starts to take the opportunity to become more serious about performing and traveling around to perform at this point. Around this time, blues musician Sun House moved to Robinsonville, where Robert was living, to work and perform with his musical partner, Willie Brown. These are both big names in old-timey American blues. And these future blues legends would politely allow, uh, at least initially, Robert to sit in and play with them sometimes as they performed on the Roadhouse circuit, but would say later that uh, initially they were really unimpressed with his musicianship and after a while would even try to avoid him because they saw him as such like a wannabe and he didn't have any of the necessary talent to back up his goals basically that's brutal so robert johnson comes up the streets oh hey guys and they're like yeah they're ducking into a nearby doorway because he's really he's apparently according to literally everyone interviewed who knew him at the time robert was really mediocre he had a lot of passion he he really wanted to be a good musician but he just was not at this point House said in an interview included in the 1997 documentary, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl, that audiences couldn't stand Johnson's guitar playing at this point. Quote, folks, they come and say, why don't you go out and make that boy put that thing down? Meaning the guitar. <laughs> He's running us crazy. Finally, he left. He ran off from his mother and father and went over in Arkansas someplace or other. So basically, feeling the freeze, Robert disappeared from the Robinsonville area for the next six to 18 months you know it's interesting a um th there's not like a blueprint for becoming a you know a, a traveling blues musician at this point sure. it doesn't exist mm -hmm. there's no uh, blueprint for being a pop star or a rock star because mm -hmm. those things don't exist he's basically looking to people like sunhouse and willie brown as his mentors and they're like you're so far gone you are such a lost cause that we can't even be around you because the audiences literally can't stand to hear you play it's um it reminds me of because in stand-up comedy everyone's bad when they start sure you know and everybody just goes goes and is bad at open mics for for a, a, a year or two mm -hmm. or more before they uh before they start developing uh, uh chops but they're all really excited to be there because that's why they're there they're not getting paid um so he's, he's an open mic comic Pretty much. And so, you know, Robert's sort of sensing that they're not picking up what he's putting down. And he is likely very disappointed in his own abilities at this point. So he just disappears for either as little as six months or as much as 18 months. But he disappears from the Robinsonville area. And um, 
No one knows where he went at this time, at least the the people that he had been performing with and stuff back in Robinsonville. And it's this time period that many relate directly to the legend of Johnson selling his soul to the devil for musical talent. Okay, so there's, there is going to be a little more meat on this bone. Because I, I was already kind of satisfied by just like if his preacher was like, you're selling your soul <laughs> playing the devil's music. Well, we'll discuss that legend in detail after the break. Oh. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. And we're back. Uh, when last we left you, we heard the... I mean... It's a it's a mixed bag, the early life of Robert Johnson. He probably gets, um, he has a mom who seems to care about him. He probably mm-hmm. gets more opportunities than a lot of people in his position in very early life. Mm-hmm. And then he's dealt a tough hand with this um, young, well, young teenage wife dying. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's just not very good at the guitar, is he, Carrie? He's not. Um, but that leads us to, you, you had brought us to a pivotal moment in the story. Mm-hmm. This is the point at which Robert Johnson is going to sell his soul to Lucifer, the morning star. Allegedly. Now, the story of a man selling his soul to Satan at a crossroads to receive some kind of reward in life, though also a tormented afterlife, far preceded Robert Johnson. So even as early as Johnson's operating, this has been around for ages. In the book, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses by R. Gary Patterson, the author describes it as follows, quote, The use of the crossroads as a symbol of Satan's presence comes from the concept of being the final resting place for suicides and those unworthy of being buried in hallowed ground. Crossroads were also supposed to be the site where witches held their gatherings. Many readers familiar with the works of Nathaniel Hawthorne will remember that his character, Young Goodman Brown, from the short story of the same name, keeps his appointment with the devil at a crossroads. You love Nathaniel, don't you, Sean? Oh, one of my abs- yeah, you know, one of my absolute favorites. <laughs> it's like you with Dickens. I just don't get it. I like Nathaniel, though. I like Young Goodman Brown in particular, but it's witchy, so. Well, that's it's, why. it's short anyway, so. <laughs> wow. We've referenced this fact before, but just to remind all of you, um, Hawthorne knew all about witchiness. It was his ancestor, John Hathorne, that had sat as one of the judges in the Salem witch trials, helping send many innocents to their deaths for the crime of consorting with Satan. We talked a lot about that. I don't know, a year and a half ago? Yeah, Cat's butt was involved. Let's not let's not go back there. <laughs> Little pea cake. Yeah, pea cakes, absolutely. Yeah. There's also the classic story of Faust, where the titular character makes a pact with the devil at the crossroads, exchanging his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. 
This was kind of the typical exchange made in these kinds of legends for an afterlife spent in hell, but you don't have to worry about that till later, you know? Um, the soul giver would receive whatever he asked for in life in this pact. Uh, this would be known as a Faustian bargain, sacrificing spiritual values for power, knowledge, or material gain. Robert Johnson wasn't even the first bluesman to have been rumored to sell his soul to the devil. An earlier musician, Tommy Johnson, no relation, also had a similar story. That's the name of the guitarist in um, uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, according to Tommy Johnson's brother Liddell, Tommy claimed himself to have sold his soul to Satan at a crossroads in exchange for his mastery of the guitar. And I think even less is known about Tommy's full life, um, which is why this legend is more attributed to Robert Johnson. And, and it was even, you know, during or near Robert Johnson's lifetime. But um, I think he's just such a pivotal figure. And there's this really interesting dichotomy between his like bad musicianship in the early life and then he just comes back and he's like much better which we'll talk about um later and it's so this sort of like miraculous change that i think makes it more of a you know a long-lasting legend for robert than for tommy but Liddell uh, gave a description of the supposed event to author Francis Davis in his book, The History of the Blues. Quote, if you want to learn to play anything you want to play and learn how to make songs yourself, you take your guitar and you go to where a crossroads is. A big black man will walk up there at the stroke of midnight and take your guitar and he'll tune it. And pretty much after he tunes it, it's like magic. You just suddenly become really, really great at guitar. For clarity's sake, Liddell may not have meant a big black man in like an ethnic sense um, rather. And especially in the early colonial era, you'll see this in Salem witch trials documents. The devil was all often referred to as black, like, but this might've been more of like a vibe or a shadowy thing rather than a reference to the color of skin, though it could have been that because they were racist and, you know, they had slaves still at that point. So who knows? For sure. Or he could have been covered in black fur. Yes. Or soot because he's from hell. Made of smoke. Yes. Um, And for those film buffs among us, uh, Sean, you did mention you might recognize this specific version of the story because it was referenced in the film, Oh Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? When Everett, Pete, and Delmar pick up a man at a deserted crossroads, he introduces himself as Tommy Johnson and tells the men that he had just sold his soul to the devil, leading right into the recording of the group's uh, admitted bop, I Am a Man of Constant Sorrow, which Tommy plays on the recording of. The Soggy Bottom Boys, of course. Mm -hmm. But how did Robert become associated with the legend? The major turning point, as I mentioned earlier, seems to be this unaccounted for six to 18 months when he disappeared from his usual circuit. Okay. All right. Hold on. So you're going to tell me he disappeared for between a, a half a year and a year and a half. Yes. And when he came back, no one knows what he's been doing. Yes. But he's really good at guitar. Yes. I have a feeling about what he might have been doing for 18 months. Importantly, when Robert left Robinsonville, he was such a mediocre blues musician that local performers were literally trying to avoid him so they didn't have to feel obligated to let him play with them, even as like a pity thing. But when he came back, he was an absolute virtuoso. 
Particularly, he seemed to have completely mastered the guitar and the blues sound in the short time he was gone without any explanation. And he didn't even seem to have given details as to how he got so good. Because all he did was play for eight (laughs) hours a day for 18 months. Well, it was said by some that Robert had learned these newfound abilities with the guitar, at least, from blues musician Isaiah Ike Zimmerman, who he'd met at one of Zimmerman's performances around 1931 at a local juke joint in Beauregard, Mississippi. This is close to where Robert had been born in Hazelhurst. And so this fact leads many to believe that Robert had gone looking for his birth father, Noah Johnson, after being told by Julia that his true parentage was not as he had thought all of his life. And then along this sort of journey to understanding of himself, he ran into Zimmerman. And he said, you're my dad now. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I mean, definitely a major figure in his story. And Zimmerman himself had this spooky sort of mystique. It was rumored that he had learned to play guitar as well as he did supernaturally by visiting graveyards at night with the instrument and playing among the tombstones. Of course, it doesn't exactly give the details as to how playing a guitar in a graveyard will help you become a blues legend. Well, I'll do th- I'll do that. I'll well, do it right now. Maybe like if any of the <laughs> dead people are guitarists, sure. they'll come out and jam with you. There's no better way to any m- musician will tell you if you're jamming with other musicians is how you get better. Right. Well, it was said that Robert would join Ike on midnight jaunts to Beauregard Cemetery, as well as other uh, burying grounds. And that is where the men would practice together, sitting on the tombstones with no crowd to complain about the noise, which was probably particularly useful in Robert's case, because when he left, the crowds were literally begging the other musicians to take him (laughs) off the stage. When Johnson returned to the Robinsonville area, Sunhouse, Willie Brown, and all the musicians that had previously given him the cold shoulder were stunned by his miraculous change in abilities. And to them, however long he was actually gone, it didn't account, the, the timing didn't account for how much he had improved. So he must have really sucked and then really became like an expert. Right. The definitive story would end up stemming from Sun House, telling historian Pete Welding later in life, quote, he sold his soul to the devil to get to play like that. And to House, it was really, as he presented it, the only plausible explanation for how (laughs) Johnson had become such a virtuoso in months. Um, Quote, when that boy started playing and when he got through, all of our mouths were hanging open. All. He was gone. So pretty much like he was just... Totally leagues above where he had been. I'm dead. Mm-hmm. I'm out of here. Uh, this was um, Sunhouse recalling the first time the musicians heard him play when he res- returned to Robinsonville. So it was just such a huge drastic shift. In the Netflix documentary Remastered, Devil at the Crossroads, researchers wondered at how Johnson was able to achieve his signature sound that he ended up displaying after this mysterious time away. Because to them, um, it almost sounded like a whole band was playing or like multiple instruments. But the only instrument and the only person playing was Johnson on his old six string, which he had rigged to be a seven string. Now, I don't really know much about strings, but um, that seems interesting that he had made this guitar seven strings for some reason. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to... You'd have to rig some kind of a tuning peg up onto the to the head to drill another hole through your stock and 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 run the um, 
run the string through your bridge and run the string through there. Mm, string through the bridge, yeah. And then you'd have to tune it uh, like probably to one of the other strings. Or the devil tuned it. Sure, you have the devil <laughs> tune it, yes, to one of the other uh, <laughs> strings probably. I don't know. Maybe it would create some kind of echo, but that's only for one of the strings, I guess. So it's interesting. Sometime on his journey, Johnson also fathered a child with a woman named Virgie Mae Smith. And on his return to town, he married another woman, Coletta Craft, in May 1931. The couple lived for a time in Clarksdale, Mississippi, starting in 1932. However, Johnson would soon leave, rejuvenated by his sudden expertise to become a traveling musician. And Coletta died in early 1933. Unlucky in love. Yeah. And... That's another thing that people bring up is that he, despite having certain certain advantages, not necessarily advantages, but um, again, he was educated. He had a, a caring family, as, as far as we know. Um, th- these were things that not everyone in his situation benefited from at the time. But he experienced a lot of tragedy, especially with his love life. And... Um, like the the woman that he had gotten pregnant, her family was very religious. It was out of wedlock, so they were just forbidden to be together. Even if he had wanted to marry her, he wasn't allowed to. And so when Coletta died, he never married again, but he kind of um, became a sort of romantic nomad. He would... Uh, you mean a fuckboy? Well, he, he on his travels, he would uh, often stay with lady friends for extended periods of time. And, and these would often be romantic entanglements. Um, so yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a bit of a fuckboy. Okay. All right. Just confirming. <laughs> From 1932 until his death in 1938, Robert Johnson played the circuit between the cities of Memphis, Tennessee and Helena, Arkansas including small towns in the Mississippi Delta and neighboring Mississippi and Arkansas regions. And at times he would even travel much further, including performances in Chicago, New York, Canada, and more. Um, One guy who was getting together a, like a massive performance of like all the big names basically at the time, I think in New York, um, it was, it was called something like uh, From Spirituals to Swing or, or something like that, was trying desperately to find Robert Johnson because he had heard of him all the way from the East Coast, but he had already died. So Wow. Yeah. Um, but he was becoming known, even though thing, fame was very different back then. News traveling and especially entertainment traveling was very different back then. People were starting to hear of this man who could play like a whole band. And is he like 25, 26 at this point? Yes, yes. Uh, some people would say that he would turn his back on the audience while he played so they couldn't see how he made his guitar sound the way it did. Sure, the magic trick. You got to protect your secrets. Mm-hmm. Um. Around 1936, he endeavored to make some actual recordings of his songs now that that was becoming at least a little easier by the end of the year. These are a wax cylinder? I think these are very, very early records. I mean, probably some cylinders, but I I saw images at least of like the first pressings of these records, which did really well. I think his first uh, single, so to speak, sold like 10,000 copies, which is... I mean, it's be- it's bigger than uh, Polka 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 or whatever John Candy was playing. Uh, kiss Me Polka? Yes. Polka Twist. Um, 
By the end of the year, he had committed 16 pieces to record, including eventual blues standards. I believe I'll dust my broom. Uh, <laughs> that is that is a as you know a wedding classic a yes. wedding playlist isn't uh isn't he, ready without gotta dust my broom mm-hmm. sweet home chicago and the intriguingly named crossroad blues here's a selection from the latter I, I don't know if I hear the guitar thing you're talking about where it sounds like, well, how is he making all those sounds? You know, that was something that like professional musicians and stuff have talked about. So I just sort of went with it. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm very much They know a, better than me. Yeah, I'm very much not a professional musician. So Yeah, I mean, I do hear kind of some doubling of notes, but I don't know how normal that is on a guitar anyway, because I play my little ukulele and that's all I do. It's got four strings. It's small. It's just, it is, yeah. <laughs> Now, interestingly, Crossroad Blues doesn't contain any actual references to some sort of Faustian bargain or the devil. It does talk about the crossroads, but he's kind of like talking about a lady, mostly. So he's at the crossroads like, well, do I do, do I do I fuck or do I not fuck? <laughs> I'm Robert Johnson. I'm gonna fuck. But Johnson would record two songs at his later session that would reflect on those themes. Hellhound on my trail, which we heard uh, at the top of the show. But that's a we can agree that's a pretty flexible metaphor. Mm-hmm. And me and the devil blues. Uh, in the former, Johnson sings of trying to escape a well, a hellhound on his trail. It's a likely reference to common imagery in Southern churches at the time, apparently, where they talked a lot about uh, hellhounds running down and catching sinners. It might have also been sort of a veiled metaphor about lynching because a lot of, unfortunately, um, African-American people who were lynched or sort of set upon by town mobs, they had dogs put on them and, and things like that. So maybe the hellhound was sort of like a hellish hound instead of a hound from hell. Also, going back to, I don't know if I'm grasping at straws here, but going back to slavery and to the um, sort of Negro spiritual uh, roots of of this Mm -hmm. music, um, you know, wade in the water and wade in the water, God's going to trouble the water is because the the dogs that would be after you aren't going to smell the... Right. Smell the water, right? Although it's probably, it's certainly a literal reference to Moses. But, um, right. But, but anyway, but, my, my but point it's, is... It's a double reference, which might be going on in this song. And Hounds on Your Trail, yeah, that, that could also be uh, hearkening back all the way to that time. Although, as you point out, certainly people were still being tracked through the South with dogs in the early 1900s. Yeah, and it speaks to sort of a existential dread, um, this sort of original sin of America, right, That it, that is following behind. I mean... At this point, Robert Johnson is singing within less than a century after the end of the Civil War. He's born, 
less than 50 years after the end of the Civil War, you know? So it's all very, very fresh. And he might feel like he has a hellhound on his trail, which is just this curse of his background. In uh, Me and the Devil Blues, uh, Johnson very interestingly tells the story of the song's POV character waking up one morning to find the devil knocking on his door, telling him it's time to go. So perhaps this is referencing a man who has sold his soul and is now expected to return to hell with Satan to fulfill his part of the Faustian pact. The lyrics conclude with the lines, You may bury my body down by the highway side so my old evil spirit can catch a greyhound bus and ride. And again, uh, as we mentioned earlier, suicides and um, others that weren't allowed to be buried on Christian burial grounds were often buried at crossroads. So that's kind of like a, you know, by the highway side sort of thing might be a reference to that. Um, crossroads have always been considered kind of spooky too. Mm-hmm. The Romans had, I mean, they had a God for everything, but there was a goddess of crossroads and she was kind of spooky mm-hmm. and, uh, related to magic and fortune tellers and witches would sit up there. And it's also where you'd have political debates, which is the scariest sure. thing of all. <laughs> oh, especially nowadays. Right. Am I right? Uh, yeah. I mean, there ancient Roman times. You have the old ye oldie witchcraft times reference crossroads and even, you know, I didn't get too deep into this because it's, it's sort of like a whole other like religious topic. But um, Papa Legba, the uh, voodoo or hoodoo god um, associated often with death in the culture is said to also be like associated with crossroads or the god of the crossroads or things like that. Again, I didn't get too deep into that because... You know, it's like a whole other separate thing. But um, it sort of ties into the idea of this, uh, you know, the the old spirituals and um, how those often mixed via metaphor or or whatever the the new sort of Christianity that had been imposed on slaves that had been brought to this country and the the remnants of the religions that they brought with them from Africa. So perhaps um, Robert Johnson did go with the devil uh, when he answered the door because Me and the Devil Blues was recorded at Johnson's final session in June of 1937. And I think there was only like two major recording sessions and that's where his entire legacy comes from. Wow. And now you could listen to him on Spotify, which is kind of crazy. Robert Johnson. Yeah, and you can probably listen to his whole catalog in... Uh, an hour and a half yeah robert johnson died on august 16th 1938 at the age of 27 near greenwood mississippi it is not known what was the actual cause of death it was not reported publicly nearly three decades later mississippi-based musicologist gail dean wardlow found johnson's death certificate but discovered it had only listed the date and location without any cause of death and no autopsy had been done Some have speculated that Johnson had congenital syphilis, which could have been a contributing factor to his death. I don't know if they thought this because he showed symptoms or he was just a fuckboy, but that was one theory. But others, including a lot of scholars, a lot of people interviewed from Robert Johnson's family or people who knew him, thought that his end actually came from more nefarious means. Well, that was the 
first thought I had was honestly that it is very suspicious that a 27-year-old dies, there's no autopsy, yeah. and uh, no inquest. Well, no even cause of death listed, which is seems... Un- I mean, I don't... I, I'm sure bookkeeping wasn't exactly top of the block back in the 30s, but and, it seems very unusual to me. And it... You know, it wouldn't surprise me if the authorities cared less about Robert Johnson than they would have cared about maybe oh, a white person. Who well, died, so. I'm sure that's the case, even if it had nothing to do with his death certificate. As detailed in the film, The Search for Robert Johnson, there are a few differing accounts of the events preceding the musician's death. Johnson had been performing for the last few weeks of his life at a country dance at a town about 15 miles outside of Greenwood, Mississippi. It's a long dance. Wasn't everybody (laughs) tired after three weeks? It's like the dancing plague we talked about. According to one theory, Johnson was murdered by the jealous husband of a woman who he'd been flirting with. In an account that's kind of related to this, and this was shared directly by blues musician Sonny Boy Williamson, Johnson had been flirting with this married woman at the dance, and the woman gave Robert a bottle of whiskey that, unbeknownst to Johnson, had been poisoned by her irate husband. Did she know in this story? I'm assuming this is fake. Maybe. Because, because we don't have a name of the, of the woman or... Well, she might have just been some random, but Sonny Boy Williamson was there like present for this and he said this happened so okay again i mean a lot of these guys are building their own legends so who's to say but it is worth noting that johnson's own family did think he was murdered now if we're taking that guy at his word though what that suggests to me is that robert johnson drank a bottle of whiskey and then died Well, Robert took the bottle to drink, and Williamson knocked it from his hand, berating him to never drink from a bottle that he hadn't personally opened himself. Johnson, in response, maybe a little pissed about losing a bottle of whiskey, said, don't ever knock a bottle out of my hand. Soon after, Johnson was offered yet another bottle by the same lady, also had been poisoned, and this time he accepted it and drank from it. It's just that this presupposes a world where people are just carrying around poison and and the best way to murder someone is buying them multiple bottles at the bar it was it was a thing at the time we'll we'll talk about it in a minute but people were poisoned in such a fashion uh in this era bottle service is expensive it's just an expensive poisoning (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It's like, how do I ensure this person's going to consume it? I'm going to give them something that is looks too good to be true. A free bottle of whiskey? Hell yeah. Johnson is reported to have begun feeling sick that evening, having to help be helped back to his room in the early hours of the morning. And over the next three days, his condition steadily worsened with witnesses reporting that Johnson died in a convulsive state of intense pain after vomiting throwing up blood, having seizures, things like that. Robert McCormick uh, claimed to have tracked down the man who supposedly had actually murdered Johnson and even obtained a confession from him in an interview, which he talked about in the Search for Robert Johnson documentary, but he wouldn't reveal the man's identity. That's this weird. is a historian, so I don't know. Why? I don't know. Because he like had to... He had to promise him to get the, the name out of him and Maybe. he's an honorable dude. Maybe. Maybe he was. Maybe the most important thing to him was the truth, and not necessarily the details being shared publicly. I don't know, but he's. He, I mean, he, the guy's got a Wikipedia page. He's a respected music historian, so I thought it was worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. 
Some have speculated that the poison that killed Johnson was strychnine, um, but it's been disputed because apparently, I wouldn't know, but it has such a distinctive smell and flavor that it can't be disguised even with strong liquor. Interesting. But another theory, and the one that more uh, people have seemed to gravitate to, is that Johnson was poisoned with naphthalene that is obtained from dissolved mothballs. And as you kind of queried, Sean, this was an apparently common way of poisoning people in the rural South, and it was rarely fatal. So perhaps the poisoning and this fashion of poisoning had been meant as simply sort of an uncomfortable punishment for flirting with a married woman. You know, the the sort of like, I'll put Nair in her uh, shampoo sort of vibe. Yeah, but she agreed to to do it. She, she was complicit in the poisoning twice? Yeah, but maybe she, I'm sh- maybe she didn't think that he was going to get murdered. Just that so he would like have the shits really bad for a night, you know? Yeah, well, count your mothballs more carefully. <laughs> But the thing is here that Johnson had previously been diagnosed with an ulcer and other stomach issues. So this could have resulted in hemorrhaging when introduced to this kind of poison. So his existing medical situation might have made it much more severe than it was meant to be. Now, if we're taking that step anyway, Carrie, why not say that the existing medical condition was the only thing? Because I don't think it was. I mean, I guess most people don't die from an ulcer. I don't know. But some people have also speculated that he had um, uh, Marfan syndrome because he had like super long fingers and like large eyes. And apparently they, those are markers of this syndrome. And that's possibly why he was able to play so skillfully on the guitar because he had these like long freakish fingers. Interesting. But then that causes like a glandular. Uh... Um, it, they said that it could have led to an aortic dissection or something with the heart. So he might have had an enlarged heart if he had enlarged fingers and eyes and things like that. And he had, you know, no way to get out of it, I guess. Yeah. So you're, you're, uh, do you like the poison theory? Is there, are there more theories? Uh, No. I mean, from what I can tell, murder by poison does seem to be the consensus opinion for Robert Johnson's cause of death, especially by scholars and um, people who knew him. So, of course, this leads to speculation that he had perhaps been cursed by his pact with the devil (laughs) to receive his early and violent end. Sort of like the genie thing of like, oh, I'll give you fame, but you're only going to experience it for like a year and then you're going to die tragically. The end... uh, I I think it's more, if it was a jealous husband who poisoned him, it's more just a you know, an unfortunate result of... Fuckboyism? Yeah, what it sounds like Robert got uh, up to a lot of it. I'm not slut-shaming him. That's fine. No, no. People gotta... You gotta eat, you know what I mean? Eat ain't cheap. (laughs) But the end of uh, Robert Johnson is the likely beginning of the famous... (laughs) That was Bill Clinton saying. Yeah, I know. I I just just started to skim right over that one. Um, This is likely the beginning of the famous 27 Club legend, which will certainly go into more detail down the line. But I really thought as sort of the OG, um, Mr. Johnson deserved his own episode because he kind of has this interesting legend. And then he also has this mysterious death and a very mysterious life. So um, it was worth covering. But in case our listeners don't know, the 27 Club is this informal list of famous folks, mostly musicians, artists, actors, and other celebrities who have all died an untimely death at the age of 27. 
And there are some, I mean, there are big names. That's why it's such a thing. Uh, the most famous 27 Club members include Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse, Jim Morrison, and so many others. Um, there's even been speculation that maybe there's like a statistical possibility you might die more often at 27 when you're famous and things like that. And we'll talk about it eventually because it's, it's an interesting little urban legend. But Robert Johnson is usually pointed to as like the first major name on this list. And some have speculated that some sort of curse follows these doomed artists. So maybe... Just maybe the roots of the curse begins in a fateful pact made at a crossroads by a desperate aspiring musician one dark Mississippi night. I don't think that's very likely, but uh, I loved this story. This is great. Yeah, I always love talking music history, and um, there's a lot of weirdness in it. So, Robert Johnson, um, anyone out there with, you know, Apple Music, Spotify, whatever, even YouTube, uh, go listen to a few of his songs, even if you didn't necessarily dig what we played for you today, um, they were just hugely influential. So if you if you like the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Eric Clapton, like anyone who's played a rock guitar, um, they were probably inspired in some fashion by Robert Johnson. So it's always worth sort of, uh, you know, giving respect where it's due uh, in, in these sorts of cases. Yeah, and if you like what you hear, um, if you want to get a little of that going for yourself, just head on down to the crossroads. You know, just just keep going after that. Don't make any packs with the devil. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. It's time to meet the weirdo of the week. And this time around, we have the mysterious pepperoni prankster. Wait, what? (laughs) (coughs) Pepperoni prankster? No. You can't can't do that (laughs) mid-sip. This meat-story occurred on Wednesday of last week when Heather Doherty of Manville, New Jersey, woke up to a very strange situation at her home where she has lived for the last 16 years. Upon opening her front door, Doherty saw that her property had been covered with slices of, well, pepperoni. Right. What what do you prefer, slices or logs? I think I'd rather you just throw the throw the whole logs down there. It's gonna be less of a mess. Well, here's what's most interesting, Saron. From what I could tell, uh, from my my keen eye of observation, this looked to be from a log, hand cut. Not none of this pre-sliced situation. So someone put in some real effort into cutting up this pepperoni and throwing it around her lawn. Now that is the disturbing part of this is picturing someone with a knife <laughs> mm-hmm. just furiously uh, chopping a pepperoni. Because I definitely saw some like some butts of the pepperoni there. So it feels like 
it feels like they didn't just, they're you know, open a Hormel's or whatever and toss it around. They're throwing coolies in there? There's a few coolies. I saw some. I swear. The unknown prankster had left the lunch meat, quote, from the door to the edge of the porch and then strategically placed down the stairs to the driveway and four slices on the hood and four slices on the trunk of her car. So is this like an Illuminati thing? The pepperoni Illuminati, you know, who knows? Doherty told PIX11 local news that her house had never before been vandalized in the nearly two decades she's lived on South Street. Okay, it still hasn't, to be fair. Not even on Mischief Night. But now, quote, we're trying to figure out who goes around with two loaves of pepperoni, loaves of pepperoni, (laughs) um, (laughs) in the middle of the night and cuts it up into slices and throws it on people's property, said Doherty. You have nothing better to do with your time. Doherty reported the strange situation to the police, though it's hard to say whether an actual crime has occurred here. More than anything, it's just, you know, weird. Doing the real work of the people, as local journalists always do, PIX11 sought out a local body shop to see if pepperoni being applied to car paint could ruin a vehicle's exterior. Were the slices on her car as well? Yes, four on the front, four on the back. Oh, Pepperoni cannot damage car paint if it doesn't sit for a really long time, said Ricardo Ludena of Gifford Auto Body. It can damage it if it's sitting around, especially on a hot day. Leaving no slice uncut, (laughs) PIX11 also contacted their local pepperoni experts for their take on the strange situation. Quote, It's just our friends Bob and Jim. (laughs) Spending a lifetime in the business of pepperoni, the owner of Manville Pizza, Anthony Danello, says the meat looks larger than the kind you would use on pizza. Quote, certainly, of the family of pepperoni, maybe salami, exactly what I cannot be certain, said Danello. As an Italian, it hurts the heart. Which is true. Two loaves of pepperoni wasted. It's a horrible waste. He what said, is any? And you don't know what it even means. He said, as an Italian, it hurts the heart. As an Italian, it hurts the heart. Listen, and honestly, I feel that deeply in my core. Having eaten a lot of pepperoni in my life, I think it has had an impact on my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, if not your car paint. Also, that is the um, that is exactly what local news is for. That's amazing yes. coverage. Two experts? I mean, incredible work. For Doherty's part, she just wants some answers. It is funny. However, it's wrong, she said. You should not be trespassing. You should not be vandalizing people's properties. And as of recording, chillingly, the pepperoni prankster remains at large. Dun, dun, dun. Has there Have there been further uh, sausagings? Not as far as I could tell. There was a follow-up with Doherty, who said that she was um, recognized multiple times while at her local grocery store after the news story broke. Yeah, but only in the cured meat aisle. But uh, yeah, no no more mysterious meats have turned up. But I, I will definitely keep an eye on this situation and make sure to let our listeners know if the pepperoni prankster strikes again. Thank you, Carrie. You're doing God's work out there. I know. Someone has to. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number 203-666-5529. 
And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on those top couple of Patreon tiers. Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, Delaney, and Sue. Thank you all very much. We love you. And um, it's been a while since I reminded you, you're still members of our spooky family. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.